Make the cops look dumb on the borderline. Spring is sad. Must be the mood of the time. Rudy said we've got to be wise and we've got to get on. It's a security state operation. Rich get with a gun. I fight in Palestine against the PLO. Andrea said she's not the girl that I used to know. We said we've got to be wise and we've got to be armed. It's a security state operation, which can't wait. off we were talking about <laughs> the RAF taking out a computer system used to bomb or coordinate the bombing campaigns in like Laos, Cambodia, uh, Vietnam. Precisely. And we do not know how they could have known that, who could have given them that information, but like astoundingly good work. Mm-hmm. And like probably out of their operational capacity, like it just raises all these questions, which I think we'll circle back to. They also do bomb uh, two police stations, right? One in Munich and one in Augsburg. Mm -hmm. And uh, many people are injured and a few people are killed there too. So this is a pretty crucial point because they're starting to lose lots of sympathies. Um, not just among the general population who never really liked them to begin with, but also among leftists and the student movement. 
which for their operations was sort of crucial not to alienate them, right? Mm -hmm. Also, the police is now on the highest fucking alert. The Notstandgesetze that I mentioned earlier, mm -hmm. you can suspend uh, constitutional rights through those, they are now in full force, right? And probably the most significant bombing in terms of public impact, the gang bombs the Springer building. Yeah. Now, they do call it in, right? They phone someone, a clerk answers, and she doesn't really take it seriously. There probably have been bomb threats before. Toxically enough, the Bild Zeitung itself has at multiple points published articles about supposed bombings of a Red Army faction, which they had never planned. Mm -hmm. So Springer executives decide that this threat is not worthy, suspending work for a few hours, and they do absolutely nothing. No one in the building knows there is a bomb, and it goes off. I'm not actually sure how lethal this bombing was. I know that mm. um, lots of people were uh, critically injured at the uh, Springer bombing, but if I remember correctly, there are zero casualties. Yeah, that's a good point to bring up. From my notes, 17 people were injured, both at the Springer bombing and at the uh, Budenberg bombing, which isn't actually shown in the movie. It's one of the smaller ones. It hit a um, courthouse in Budenberg. No casualties. And actually, I have to correct myself, um, the Augsburg police bombing and the Munich police bombing also have zero casualties. Many cars are destroyed. Um, some people are lightly injured in the police bombings, but no one's actually critically injured and no one dies. Interesting. Yeah, now I'm just pondering that. Really, aside from the um, two bombings of the military stations, at this point in the RAF's track record, there weren't that many uh, kills. Certainly lots of people were injured uh, heavily, right? which is like terrible on its own, but they hadn't actually killed many people up at that point. Yeah, it kind of makes me think at this juncture a little bit like, even though they are quite different, it does make me think a little bit of like the weather underground who would, you know, bomb literally like hundreds and hundreds of targets and kill almost nobody. Mm -hmm. Interesting, almost like a symbolic bombing. I think the uh, the IRA would also do some symbolic bombings that would like attempt not to harm anyone. Yep, for sure. Well, okay, but the Springer one in particular was pretty big. It was a pretty big deal for like alienating their support, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think crucially because um, the Springer bombing was so different because they weren't targeting U.S. military institutions, which yeah. is what they were claiming to do, right? Fighting U.S. imperialism in Vietnam. They also weren't targeting um, German like uh, military or what they called police state institutions. No, they pretty much directly injured workers yeah. and workers who most of them were probably innocent. Some of them were probably like cleaning personnel and stuff like that. People who would not conceivably be like Springer executives or like super sympathetic necessarily to the stuff they were, you know, publishing. Yeah, 
definitely seems like a big tactical mistake, which at the time, a lot of the communiques afterwards were trying to like justify. But I think, and the film does show this, they would later sort of acknowledge that that was just a huge mistake. Yep. Yeah, specifically Meinhof herself acknowledges that she thinks this was a mistake. And of course, this mistake, like it will have consequences. And the consequences of the recent bombings were the biggest mass mobilization in German police history after the war. It was insane. Um, I think more than 3000 policemen in total were involved, like vast stretches of streets in northern Germany were constantly uh, supervised and blocked. They had helicopters running. They did um, strip searches all day, pretty much. It was crazy. Yeah, like, correct me if I'm wrong, or I just don't recall the name of the uh, the head of the German equivalent to the FBI. Oh, it was Horst Herold. Yes. He... There's a scene in the movie where he compares it to like shaking the water surface to like get things to like rise to the surface to like basically shake society up to like try to get the RAF out essentially. Mm -hmm. Since you were interested in the development of the uh, German uh, police, I think this will tickle your fancy. <laughs> so some people in the scene concluded that this event was never really about finding the Red Army faction members, but was instead a test of the paramilitary abilities of the German police and specifically the Grenzschutz in preparation for what they called the Day Axe. Only a few decades later, it was revealed that there were indeed fascist paramilitaries planning for what they also called Day Axe all over Europe. Uh, talking, of course, about Gladio. Okay, so essentially, among other things, this was a trial run for Gladio. <laughs> it was definitely a trial run for the new capabilities of the German police. Um, a small Maoist publication notes that the budget of the um, BKA, again the German FBI, had doubled from 25 to 50 million in just one year and then tripled from the original budget in 1972, it was now at 75 million mark. The personnel, um, in addition, had almost doubled to 1,600. It's um, very interesting that all of this happened before the Red Army faction bombings, very shortly before. You could almost say like leading up to the bombings. <laughs> yeah, you could almost say that. <laughs> And these things, right, they never changed. The BKR today has a personnel of 8,000. The annual budget was 20 mil in 1970, 144 mil in 1980, 300 mil in 2000, and is as of today 800 million euros. It's funny how you never see these things wind down. They only wind up. They only go in one direction, right? And uh, you may ask yourself, why has the budget doubled, even though the crime rate has been falling for five consecutive years and Germany has some of the lowest rates of violent crime in the world? Mm -hmm. Well, the BKR will tell you yourself, it is because of the so-called clan criminality, which in reality is when you like arrest brown people because their surname sounds very funny to you. 
Interesting. Now, okay, so related to this, Germany, West Germany is pioneering essentially what would become like SWAT units. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. In fact, the creation of SWAT units, I think, is largely pioneered in Germany and California, I want to say. We will talk about a specific SWAT group later called the um, GSG 9. I just mentioned now, in my opinion, the historical predecessors of uh, SWAT units, which is the Grenzschutzgruppe, sometimes also Grenzschutzpolizei. Basically, it just translates to um, border protection. Yeah. In reality, they're really like a paramilitary unit that you use for very special occasions, like very high state, uh, very high uh, stakes. Like, for example, later when you have to just uh, get into an airplane and none of the hostages can be shot or something like that. Yes. <laughs> very interesting. Now, I did want to ask you too, because we talked about this and then I had a memory and I cannot, and I, I tried so hard to like pin this down, but like, I have a memory that like, essentially they used like water meter usage in apartments and like used like big data analytics to like figure out who had like essentially anomalous water usage to mm -hmm. suggest that like they were having essentially like they that they were hosting RAF in their apartments or homes. Yep, exactly. I couldn't find a citation for that, but I swear I've read it before. Do you like is that what they did? That's precisely what they did, yeah. Okay. They looked at very um they looked at very highly specific data points like that. For example, do you pay cash for your electricity or yeah. heating? How much heating are you using? How much are you spending on um, amenities? Like, do you get child support? Like, which means you probably have a family and are probably less likely to be hosting uh, Red Army faction terrorists. It was pretty much a very minuscule things like these, which if you combine them, they give you a profile. This profile doesn't necessarily get you um, someone who hosts a terrorist just gets you someone who fits the raster, who kind of, who got caught in the net and somehow uh, fits all those attributes. Yes. But like that gets you so much further in your, like, like it gets from like the entire nation theoretically down to like, you know, yeah. Like, oh, that's so interesting. And like, it really, I think informs like the capabilities that they have now that I think sometimes people are not aware of. Like even now people are like speculating that, wow, we could, we could use big data to like, really like <laughs> use, like we could, we could really do some dark, like police state stuff. And it's like, no, in the seventies, West Germany found the RAF because of water usage. Like what can they do now? <laughs> Yeah, maybe this is the most important thing to keep in mind, right? It was highly successful. Yes. They did get lots of innocent people too. Like there was significant collateral damage. And pretty much like um, the 
northern half of Germany was sort of shut down for some day. Like there were massive, um, massive traffic problems and stuff like that, but they just didn't care. And lots of people even supported the uh, strip surges. They put like stupid um, plaques on their cars saying, we don't house terrorists and shit like that. Yeah. And like, even like just the psychological effect of basically turning into a police state and like seeing or having to go through a, like a strip search, like all of this, like definitely has an effect. That's very interesting. And the police state that the Red Army faction basically uh, predicted came into full force in some part also because of them, which is uh, highly ironic and also very sad. Yeah, there's a scene in the movie where one of the younger members looks at Ulrike and is like, this is the police state you were always talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, like actually they did in fact sort of predict it. So ultimately they do end up catching everyone, right? In the first generation. I don't think they actually get everyone from the mm. um, first generation, but they do get all the major players is what counts. Yeah. And um, they have Bada, Enslin, Meinhof, um, and Mainz. I think also Raspe. I think so. First caught up in different prisons all around Germany. It actually takes um, quite some time until they enter the famous Stammheim prison in Stuttgart. Now, I wanted to ask you, I had heard somewhere that they built it specifically to hold the RAF. I don't know if that's actually true. Do you know if that's true? It's not exactly true. So um, it was a very young prison, right? It was, um, I think they started construction in the late 50s and it only finished somewhere in the early 60s. So it was probably one of the youngest um, correctional facilities in entire Germany. And they also, this is the true part, they did build um, a specially secluded part of the prison, of the prison specifically for the Red Army faction. Now, I don't know if they just, you know, like reinforced an already existing part of the prison or if they really did start construction on a completely new wing. It's not really specified in the sources I've read, but they did go through a whole lot of motions to have an especially secure part of this already especially secure prison. Yeah, because I know that like in U like US penal history, there was this like development of like secured wings, maximum security, like wings that are like designed to control the travel of information between prisoners. And yeah, I could imagine that like, I could imagine them like innovating with the RAF on like at least a wing. That makes a lot of sense. Because they did start doing some really, how, how should we say, like spooky shit in this prison? Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, I have a passage that I would like to read um, about the conditions. We have what Red Army Faction themselves said, both yeah. which is obviously heavily propagandized, and the whole thing is made so much worse by the fact that um, many of the documents relating to the Red Army Faction have, ever have actually never been published. Mm. And... Uh, 
and like it continues to be just a big question mark in the room that you can dance around but you can never really get to the truth until this finally gets out all right so and this is i think before uh ulrike was sent to uh Stamheim, but uh the passage reads ulrike meinhoff was put in the so-called dead wing at cologne ossendorf prison where astrid prol had previously been held in order to ensure the women remained separate prol was transferred to the men's wing the dead wing was intended not only to isolate, but to induce a breakdown through sensory deprivation torture. It consisted of a specially soundproofed cell painted bright white with a single grated window covered with fine mesh. So even the sky could not be viewed properly. The cell was lit 24 hours a day with a single bald neon light. It was forbidden for the prisoner to, hand, to hang photographs, posters, or anything on the walls. All the other cells in the wing were kept vacant, and when the prisoners were moved through the prison, for instance, to the exercise yard, they were obliged to take a circuitous route so that even their voices could not be heard. The only minimal contact with another human being was when food was delivered. Other than that, the prisoners spent 24 hours a day in the world with no variation. The use of sensory deprivation has been studied by doctors in Canada and the United States since the late 1950s. The line of research taken up in the FRG by Dr. Jan Gross of Hamburg's Eppendorf University Hospital. Studies carried out by Gross found that sensory deprivation consistently caused feelings of unease ranging from fear to panic attacks, which could progress to an inability to concentrate Problems with perception, including hallucinations, vegetative disorders, including feelings of intense hunger, chest pains, disequilibrium, trouble sleeping, trembling, and even convulsions. This is some real horrific stuff. Yeah. Like, this is like both experimenting on these prisoners, and also, I want to say there was a different passage that I, I don't think I wrote down, but like, there was a passage where they were like, the German doctors were joking, like, how funny would it be if Ulrike Meinhof, one of their leaders, was shown to be like a total crazy person? Mm -hmm. So they were, there was sort of an incentive to sort of drive them insane. To add to this, um, I read a Spiegel interview with Meinhof. I think this was the only interview she gave from Stammheim. Hmm. And, um, she told of um, what she called forced narcotization mm. for investigation purposes. Oh. Now, this sounds straight up like the CIA investigation handbook. And um, I could definitely imagine some shit like that going down. Yes. Like, and I did want to note also that there was a instance of forced neurosurgery. I forget which member ha actually had a some form of like brain surgery done against their will. That's crazy. I never heard about that. Yeah. Let me see. I'll actually, I think I have it in the article here. No, I think it might have actually been with Meinhof. The thing is with Meinhof, earlier in her life, there was a period where she experienced like really terrible headaches. Mm -hmm. And it turns out she had something like a blood clot in her brain. 
At first they thought it was a tumor, but it turns out something like a blood clot. I'm not, I'm not a fucking doctor, okay? Something, something in that vein. Yeah. And yeah, they actually had to operate her, put a silver clamp on it, and that apparently helped it, made it bearable, whatever her condition improved. Could be that this flared up again. I don't know. And of course, like, I don't think we're like that far from the world of like <laughs> the real fringe stuff of like microchips in the brain or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're not that far away when we're talking like forced narco hypnosis and like weird isolation experiments and shit. Like, oh my gosh. They wish they could do that, dude. Yeah. And not there yet. <laughs> interesting well okay that's probably what they were talking about with the neurosurgery then if she had that mm -hmm. in her head already interesting there are a few things that we do know for a fact right for example that um they were on a hunger strike really long really excruciating hunger strike yeah and um holger Mainz, he was repeatedly force-fed against his will mm -hmm. what's like especially sadistic about this is that um, they fed him too little calories, which in some cases is actually worse than uh, eating nothing. Also, um, a lot of people don't know this, but if you haven't eaten in a long time and you get a lot of food in your stomach, it will react violently. This oftentimes killed people when there were um, dire conditions and people were starving. They, often didn't die from the starvation itself, but from then eating something on a long, long empty stomach and having a super heavy reaction to it. Yeah, and like also, cause I know both with this and some of the like IRA hunger strikes, like force feeding like is essentially horrific too, because they strap you down and they basically like shove a tube all the way through your throat into your stomach and if like you spasm and like you touch that like essentially like tube like it causes involuntary spasms and then like those are painful but like mm -hmm. you it often like once you start spasming it just keeps going and like so it and a lot of people described it as feeling very much like a rape not to be flippant, but like it is in a lot of ways, like a violation of like your body, right? For sure. And I do have a quote here also from a Heinz Brandt, who was an official in the IG metal trade union. He had actually been through the Holocaust, like he was in concentration camps. And he said that the conditions that the prisoners were subjected to were worse than what he suffered during four years in a Nazi concentration camp. Jesus fuck. It's anecdotal, but it's very hard hitting. <laughs> right, right. I mean, like, obviously, like, he survived or whatever, but, like, it's hard to argue that, like, this wasn't really brutal stuff. Yeah. And the Germans were pretty much cheering for that, right? Mm -hmm. um, Horst Herold, he gets a call in his office congratulating him. Oddly enough, the interior minister now considers the Red Army faction done and wants no further investigations. Yeah. I don't know what that's about, but <laughs> it's not going to hold long anyway, because... Oof. <laughs> let's put that under the... under the Let's, let's hide that real quick. <laughs> it's not going to hold long, because now the really crazy stuff happens. 
Yeah. Like, well, if the first generation was like some bank robberies and some bombings, that's relatively like, that's pretty crazy. But like the second generation takes it even to the next level, right? Yeah, I would agree. And I lived in a jar in East Berlin. I was clinically depressed at the state I was in. Bunny in East Germany, playing by the wall. Bunny, 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 over the wall. Eureka Meinhof's brain is missing Organic matter on the run There's a hullabaloo In a Stasi HQ Jürgen, Jürgen, call the surgeon Eureka Meinhof's brain is gone Some bloody do-gooder Sent me away And they sent out a search For the runaway brain Bunny in Berlin Brain by the wall Bunny, bunny, bunny Over the wall Eureka Meinhof's brain is missing Organic matter on the run There's a hullabaloo in the Stasi HQ, Jürgen, Jürgen, acting surgeon, Ulrika Mernhoff's brain has gone. Have they found me a head to live inside? I was a Marxist fam fam by the age of five. Bunny in East Germany, over the wall. All the cheating of bunnies playing by the wall. Eureka Meinhof's brain is missing. Cerebral matter on the road. There's a bed of a dude Stasi HQ Acting yet and come the surgeons Eureka Meinhof's brain is gone Money, money, money 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 so, a terrorist group calling itself Black September commits a horrifying atrocity against the Israeli team in Munich, right? Um, this group, in my opinion, is worth getting a bit into the weeds about. Mm. So, Black September supposedly originates from Fatah elites. They had done many previous actions, but were mostly actually centered on uh, Jordanians. They had killed the Prime Minister uh, Wasfitel and five Jordanians in Germany previously. Mm. The head of his gang, called Ali Hassan Samalech, was also in contact with and protected by the CIA's Robert Ames, head of Middle Eastern Directory. Oh, really? 
this is claimed by um, Tim Weiner and Kai Bird. But apparently the CIA's protection is not good enough because uh, Ali Samaleh was killed, I believe, by uh, Mossad while under CIA protection. Yeah, like there was famously the Munich movie, uh, but also like there was a book like they Mossad had like a hit team killing a lot of these guys, right? Mm -hmm. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, but I'm pretty sure that in that movie and in most popular accounts, they don't say that Mossad was whacking people under CIA protection, right? Nope, definitely do not mention that. <laughs> Uh, one other thing that is super crazy about uh, Black September, one of the weirdest alliances you could possibly imagine, is that um, these Arabs, they also received support from local German neo-Nazi groups, Der Spiegel much later revealed. Interesting. Yeah, the Black September, they were getting weapons and fake papers from local neo-Nazi groups doesn't take a very curious mind to see some kind of Gladio connection there. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> and this ties into the Red Army faction too, right? Because the Black September group then, like weirdly enough, they demand the release of Meinhof, Bada and Enslin, even though I think none of the people had ever met before. They just released a big list of people they wanted freed. Yeah, and they were included in a list that was like largely like a lot of like Palestinians, right? Mm -hmm. or, like people, you know, associated in the uh, movement. Yeah, it sort of stuck. Yeah, it stuck out a little bit, didn't they? <laughs> yeah, interesting. So, okay, that's so interesting. Sorry, several several points here. You're telling me new information that I'm just like stuck sitting here processing. <laughs> no problem at all. Dude. We've got time. Now a lot of unimportant shit happens, right? Now there's like a few not so important scenes. There's like this interior ministry discussion and then Meinhof is shown going slowly insane. We kind of already mentioned that. Yeah. Oh, uh, this is the next big one. So um, in the movie, we see Holger Mainz. Uh, we, we remember he had been repeatedly force fed yeah. and he gets a visit from his lawyer yes yeah his lawyer sees that Mainz is clearly fucking dying over here and he runs to the police and asks for the station doctor mm -hmm. who sadly is already doing his firearm and may not be called under any circumstances he's doing what he's doing his firearm which is um when you're done with work okay gotcha yeah, so they're basically they're leaving him to die, but like painfully too. Yeah. The cop even says, sorry, buddy, our hands are tied. <laughs> <laughs> now, tell me, Joe, this lawyer, does he, I forget his name, but he ends up. Yo, I actually looked this, um, I actually looked this guy up because I had the suspicion that it was Otto Schilly. It actually, um, it actually wasn't. It was a third lawyer. Um, the guy, uh, his name is Siegfried Haag, and he does play a kind of um, not so important role in the history of the Red Army faction. But yeah, he was sort of an sort of an unofficial member. Okay, so he stays above ground and just acts as like a, mm -hmm. a lawyer. Okay, interesting. You really do see 
like at least in these situations how like the lawyers play an outsized role wow very interesting okay <laughs> should we maybe continue with uh, stockholm yes the stockholm operation so the second generation formed right and it's formed out of like a mixture of like i wouldn't say like less important but like members from the first generation who either weren't caught or like had gotten out of prison already yeah precisely and then a mixture of like you said like some of the orphans and like the students and like people in the prison support groups mm -hmm. right and then they plan this operation and their goal essentially is to get the first generation out of prison to be released right and it's interesting to watch that now right because like we have maybe what like 60 years or i don't know 50 you know we have many decades of like it being inconceivable that the authorities would ever negotiate with terrorists right yep but like in this period of time it actually wasn't that crazy and there were in fact a bunch of instances where governments did in at least some narrow situations negotiate with terrorists even the red army faction managed to do it successfully once it never worked for meinhof enslin bada and Raspevo. they were just mm. way too high profile interesting yeah i mean it seems like there eventually was a like what do you think maybe like a nato requirement not to or something but like eventually most governments got to the point where they wouldn't but like there was a point at which it was like a firm stance like that only hardliners would take to like never capitulate or deal with them mm -hmm. and just to basically send in the swap teams or like talk them down or something yeah i have my own theory about that actually um this ties in with uh, hans martin schleier who we're going to talk about later and uh, Aldo Moro, who is famous from the Italian OG Gladio. I'm going to reveal that, I think, a bit later. <laughs> okay, cool. But so essentially, the second generation, like we said, they're trying to do operations to free the, to free the first generation. To that end, they plan an operation in Stockholm. And it's essentially that they send in a team a commando unit to take over the West German embassy in Stockholm. And essentially this goes sideways and it completely fucks up and yep. their bomb goes off, right? And all the terrorists die and a lot of their hostages, right? Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty terrible. It's likely one of them one of the biggest failures that the Red Army faction had in a very long history of failures. <laughs> it's probably their biggest failure, right? <laughs> um, now, I'm trying to like, so I'm trying to get the timeline right because this is separate from the like time they took over a, or hijacked an airplane, right? Stockholm was first yeah exactly i think that comes later 
Gotcha. So they fail with this Stockholm operation. And what is the fallout of that? Well, I'm not sure if this is a direct result, but very shortly after Ulrike Meinhof dies. Yes. We're not quite sure if she um, committed suicide or if someone maybe uh, helped her out a little bit. But what we do know is that she was found hanged in her cell. Now, she had been, um, especially in the movie, pretty jokerified lately. Like she looked certified <laughs> insane. Yeah. I'm not sure this isn't just a character assassination of her. But on the other hand, though, with whatever the fuck they were doing to them in Stammheim, it's like completely uh, normal that she'd go insane, right? Anyone would definitely go insane under these circumstances. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It's interesting, right? Because like, the film so okay the official narrative is that she killed herself like that's what the authorities said and then within that we almost have like russian nesting dolls of like theories of like whether she was murdered or committed suicide or she committed suicide but like the narrative was wrong like mm -hmm. and we'll you know we'll get to the rest of them in a bit but like at the time, at least among the German New Left and their supporters, it was sort of believed that she had been murdered, right? I think so, yeah. And to be honest, I'm not so sure about that. I have some, um, I think there are some pretty good reasons for Meinhof to kill herself. Mm -hmm. One little detail is um, given in the movie, and that's... Um, that the remaining four Red Army faction members are completely mangling each other, right? And Meinhof, she's basically at the fucking bottom of the packing order. So she gets to, uh, she pretty much gets everyone's aggression. Yeah. Enslin, at some point, she even calls Meinhof a traitor and a knife in the back, which kind of not so nicely ties back into the um, backstabbing myth and World War One and anti-Semitism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And in all honesty, Anseline, she kind of feels more like a traitor to me than Meinhof, in the movie at least. Yeah. Not sure how it went down in real life or if any of this is accurate. But I think Meinhof was fucked up. She had lost like all support. She couldn't talk to anyone. Even the few people that she was allowed to see sometimes, they now pretty much hated her with the exception of uh, Raspe, who I think was kind of neutral towards her. So even inside of this group that she helped found, like all she got was uh, anger and rejection. And I'm pretty sure that could lead one to suicide if you combine it with extensive torture. Yeah, like it's interesting because like I mentioned, and I read these books a few years ago, but the Red Army Faction, a documentary history by Jay Smith and Andre Moncourt they sort of lay out the evidence for and against her being killed. And I think that they are sort of, I wouldn't say neutral. I don't recall if they sort of leaned one way or the other, but like, I remember the book kind of pilled me on the idea that they might, the German authorities might have killed one or two from force feeding on purpose. But I am kind of with you on that. I feel like maybe... Ulrike did actually kill herself. 
I'm pretty sure that in Mainz's case, like there's pretty much no discussion. He was killed by the authorities due to the force feeding. Yeah. If you really wanted to make a case, I think you should probably look most towards Bada, Rasper, and most of all, God, what the fuck? What was her name? Genau. But the one who is most sus of all, by far, is the Möller case, right? So Möller reportedly, she stabbed herself four times with a knife. In the movie, it's shown as a butter knife and survives the attempt. She is, by the way, still alive today. Really? Yeah. Irmgard, I think, is her uh, first name. So Irmgard Möller stabs herself four times in the chest with a relatively dull knife. That is a weird way to kill yourself if you were going to do it. Yeah, and I've heard just separate from politics and terrorism, I've heard that like it is quite hard to kill yourself with a knife. I mean, separate from like you know, cutting your wrist or something, like I have heard that like your body will almost refuse to do it. Pretty sure if you don't have a bathtub, this is like uh, near impossible. Yeah, I guess you can cut your throat possibly, but I don't think it's easy, as you say. The uh, the seppuku harakiri thing in Japan apparently it was like <laughs> apparently it was very hard to do actually, and like that's why typically they would have a second that would like yeah wait and then cut your head off because like usually you were just going to fuck yourself up. You weren't going to like actually be able to kill yourself. Yeah. My understanding. I'm not the seppuku expert. But... Wasn't it also famously the case that um, when Yukio Mishima did his little uh, coup d'etat and it failed, that it actually took many subsequent strikes to uh, cut his head off and it didn't work on the first time? Oh, that sounds gnarly. Yeah, that shit is hard, dude. You have to, you have to practice. Yeah, because like cutting a head off is also not easy, not from what I've heard. Very yep. interesting. No, I didn't realize that she survived. Oh, man. Interesting. Yeah, I'll try to get her for an interview. That could be fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Just like immediately get swarmed by like glowing <laughs> people. Yep. Okay, so... Ulrike Meinhof kills herself. Now, from that point, if anything, the second generation goes even harder to try to free the rest of them. Yep. Right? And they take, they sort of do like two operations and they're like designed to be like, if this doesn't free them, nothing will. Right? Yep. It is a last resort for sure. And it is like, this is like some hardcore stuff. Like they, they do, or maybe they do, maybe actually, maybe they do like four actions, right? Because they, first of all, they assassinate the attorney general, Siegfried Ubach, right? Mm -hmm. And I think they just straight plan to assassinate him, right? Yeah, they never tried to kidnap him, exactly. What they did is they rolled up in a motorcycle and just fucking just riddled them with bullet holes they also killed the driver the security personnel everyone even had a long discussion about whether they should just kill Bubak, and they did decide to kill everyone yeah and like i will say not to be flippant but like in the movie it's extremely cool how they do it like it's 
really fun to watch yep. acts these acts of terrorism. No, it's a fantastic scene. <laughs> and like obviously everyone is like wearing stylish-ish clothes and like oh, it's it's pretty fun to watch, if not necessarily in real life. Again, they do really try to make the Red Army faction simpatico, right? Yes. Okay, so then the RAF also attempts to kidnap <laughs> this guy, 
He's the president of the Dresner Bank. Uh, is it Jürgen Bunte? Exactly. Nice pronunciation. Okay. Well, I, I can speak Spanish, so sometimes I can half-ass my way into a few German names. But, um, yeah, Jürgen Bunte. Now, with Jürgen Bunte, kind of like, okay, with we'll get to Schleyer and some of the weirder stuff, but like with Bubak and Bunte, were there, <laughs> how do I say it? Were there any deeper political implications to either of these guys? Like there was with Schleyer, right? Yeah, there's a connection definitely worth mentioning about um, Ponto and Bubak. And in my opinion, those were highly symbolic choices. Uh, both Ponto and Bubak, they have a very active past in the uh, Third Reich. This is something the Red Army faction loved to do, by the way. Uh, Schleyer as well. Yeah. He was also high ranking. Not sure if he was NSDAP or SS or SA, but he was definitely a high ranking Nazi. I did see Schleyer was SS. That's the first thing, right? Mm -hmm. But Ponto is also the chairman of the Dresdner Bank. Mm -hmm. The Dresdner Bank was a major player under the Nazis, right? Just like the Deutsche Bank. So Ponto has a twofold connection to the Nazis. Bubak has a specific connection to the Nazis. And the Red Army faction there, um, they always see themselves as the group after Auschwitz. And of course, this includes like the idea of we have to take denazification really seriously and not just like have discussions and stuff like that. Things need to be done. And I guess that's how they decided they were going to execute Bubak instead of just kidnapping him. And it's funny because, like, on the one hand, when, like, you see the RAF doing these things where it's, like, bombing the Springer building, and it's like, okay, you're kind of losing your way. Like, <laughs> when you start, like, just outright whacking, like, high-ranking West German officials who were not just Nazis, but, like, high-ranking and important Nazis, mm -hmm. it's hard not to have a certain degree of sympathy again, right? Especially because, like, consider how we view, for example, the Jews that were trying to get revenge or the Mossad looking for ex-Nazis, right? Yeah. We tend to view this as a very good thing in general when it's the Red Army faction doing it not so much. Yes. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Okay, so like we said, they assassinate Bubak, they end up attempting to kidnap, but then just outright killing Ponta, and then they abduct the industrialist Hans Martin Schleyer. Now, like you said, um, Schleyer was Nazi, he was in the SS, he was the administrative chief at the headquarters of the Industrial Federation in Nazi-occupied Prague, which is to say he ran the Czech economy for the Third Reich. Yep. He was, after the war, he was head of the Foreign Trade Department at the Chamber of Commerce and Industry at Baden-Baden. He was also a Daimler-Benz executive from the book Martin Bormann, Nazi in Exile by Paul Manning, helped along by the support of Friedrich Flick and the shadowy men in South America Schleyer became a member of the board of directors and handled labor relations and personnel. With Daimler-Benz as his managerial base, he became influential in the metal industry. 
and during a bitter labor dispute, Schleyer was in, instrumental in the lockout of 300,000 workers, unquote. Holy shit. So, so Schleyer, a hardcore Nazi involved in exploiting the Czech, the, uh, the Czech Republic during World War II, he's tied in with South American Nazis. He <laughs> locked out 300,000 workers. Like, I'm just going to say it. This is a very interesting target, right? Hell yeah, it is. There's a little saying here in Germany, and that's um, if you get the Bundesverdienstkreuz, so it's pretty much like the highest badge of honor you can get uh, in Germany, mm -hmm. you're most definitely a fucking Nazi. <laughs> Because that shit was given out almost exclusively to Nazis. And people with uh, Nazi pasts have been enabled in so many various ways to rise up the ranks. You mentioned the wartime economy of the Nazis, right? Mm -hmm. So many people basically made their fortune with uh, slave labor, who maybe weren't big industrialists, uh, big industrialist families before. And none of this was in any way or capacity paid back. So all of the profits that you made during the wartime economy often just stuck with you and no one really asked questions. I think this might have been the one thing that kickstarted Schleyer's career in the first place, you know, just putting something away uh, for yourself from the wartime economy. Interesting. And like, we're talking functionally, the moral equivalent to like, literally slave owners in the South. Definitely. Like, just... I mean, uh, it's not like that hard. People understand how bad Nazis are, but like, this is not just like a guy who was serving in the SS. This is like a guy who directly profited from slaving with the SS. And then who on top of that was working with South American Nazis and then fucking over German workers, West German workers after that. One of the worst things about this whole affair is Schleyer is obviously a complete piece of shit, right? But uh, the, the Red Army faction, they kind of made him into a hero. So now fucking streets are named after this guy and you have to see him everywhere. It sucks. Yeah. Just one, just one more thing the Red Army, fuck, the Red Army faction fucked up. They actually managed to gain sympathy for these fascists that they killed. It backfired a lot. Now, I was going to say, and this is a side note, but I did want to just ask Joe, have you ever seen or heard of the LaRouche people in Germany? Because I know that they're pretty, well, that's one of the other places that they're active, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've definitely heard of them. I'm not uh, super tapped in with all the important families in Germany. I mostly know about the stuff that happened uh, after World War II because that's what I specialize in. So, for example, all the major families that benefited from forced labor, right? Yeah. And all the major, um, all the major firms and uh, concerns like Deutsche Bank, IG Farben, we already mentioned, BMW, and so on. So 
long-term listeners will know that like I can't refrain from talking about Lyndon LaRouche. He's my favorite freak. <laughs> uh, he famously married a German woman, right? And he would spend a fair amount of time in West Germany, back and forth. And it was at this juncture, I want to say right here in, the, in 1977, when Lyndon LaRouche goes full batshit insane. He supposedly had this source, Mr. Ed, right? Who was supposed to be a high-ranking CIA, somewhere in the CIA, like an officer. And supposedly this Mr. Ed source warns Lyndon LaRouche that the RAF was planning to assassinate him. <laughs> <laughs> that is some wacko shit. And so supposedly this intel was supposed to be founded in reality in the sense that they found the police raided a safe house that the RAF used and found a hit list. And supposedly it was like, according to the LaRouche people, it was like Schleyer, Bubak, Ponto, Lyndon LaRouche. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously I have my doubts on this, but regardless of whether it's true or not, (laughs) this is when Lyndon LaRouche started getting real nutty and he hired, this is when he hired Mitch Werbel III. You know, this is like where it ties into like the Atlanta child murder shit with the paramilitary training camp. LaRouche would send his people to that camp to be trained in paramilitary stuff. Like, this is like a juncture for them where they really go even further off the deep end. So completely, like as you said, irrespective of whether that really happened or not, definitely caused the change in LaRouche. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then like, as for Mr. Ed, I will say this, Covert Action Magazine, who I generally respect the historical work that they've done, they imagined that actually this Mr. Ed informant was someone in James Jesus Angleton's shop, Hmm. some counterintelligence guy. And they also speculate that Mr. Ed was not one person, but a channel through which they would just leak information to the LaRouche movement. Total side note, it doesn't really matter for the RAF, but like, (laughs) I just found that that was really interesting that like, specifically with Schleyer, that's when LaRouche was just going crazy. That is pretty nutty, yeah. Um, Yeah, go ahead. Speaking of, I think this is probably... um... Maybe aside from the really insane like clubbing of the protester scene, this is where we get one of the craziest scenes and the climax of the movie, yeah. which is the PFLP and the capture of a Landshut plane. Yes. So um, Mohnhaupt, she is one of the leaders of the second generation, I would say, and uh, another member, they are meeting with a PFLP. The remaining members, meanwhile, bring um, Hans Martin Schleyer to Brussels, where he is, ho- where he is held hostage. Which let me let me ask you that real quick, Joe. Like Brussels, not exactly where I would pick if I were trying to hide someone. Definitely not. Is that not kind of weird? Kind of like, I like <sighs> being like the head of NATO isn't. Isn't aren't they in Brussels or the easiest explanation uh, for Brussels 
is probably in that it's just a very close and very easily uh, reachable by car and by train. That's a good point. That might probably have been a very pragmatic factor, right? Yeah. But yeah, I actually don't know why they picked um, Brussels specifically. And of course, like I'm not sure as to how aware they were about Gladio. It seems they did have some ideas, just not a name to pin it onto. Yeah. But uh, that shit was uh, also all over Belgium. So if they were tapped into Gladio, they should have known that this is likely one of the worst places to hide Schleier. <laughs> then again, and this is interesting, they don't get caught. So yeah, true. <laughs> like, maybe we'll come back to that idea later. But um, okay, so they have Schleier and they hijack this plane. Uh, the PFLPSC... They capture the plane and land in Mogadishu, Somalia. Mm -hmm. This entire event is really freaking significant. Yeah. Uh, the plane was freed famously by the GSG-9, the new uh, Grenzschutz, so Border Protection Group. But really, the name is a complete misnomer. What they are is an uh, anti-terror unit, which was specifically birthed from the Munich massacre. Yeah, where they where they really fucked up the Munich massacre, like really bad. Yeah, the Munich massacre. It was absolutely horrifying. Um, the Bavarian police, specifically, I think this was a Sondereinsatzkommando, which pretty much just translates to spec ops or something. They uh, storm the airport where the hostages are held, and all I mean every single remaining one of the Israeli hostages are killed in this operation. Five members of a Black September commando and even a policeman die. It was probably the most resounding failure of uh, German police commandos ever in their entire history. Yeah, I read, I think I read something where like they had snipers, but the snipers weren't coordinating. So like when they like all fired, they all fired at the same guy whose like head blew up or something. <laughs> And then, like, Jesus. that's, like, one of a bunch of other factors where they were just like, okay, we need to, like, make a small team. Yeah, but still, like, keeping all of us in mind, right? Yeah. Many Germans were opposed to the funding of a special forces group. Uh, to quote from Wiki, German politicians opposed its formation, fearing GSG 9 would rekindle memories of the Nazi party's Schutzstaffel. Hmm. The decision was taken to form the unit from police forces as opposed to the military, similar um, to equivalent forces in other countries, on the ground that German federal law forbids the use of military forces against civilian population. Now that's a clever little trick there, huh? You just yeah. make a paramilitary unit, but you make them out of cops, and then it's okay for some reason. Interesting. Wiki also says... The then uh, Grenzschutz did have something of a paramilitary nature, used military ranks until 1967, had combatant status until 1994, which in my eyes definitely makes them soldiers, yeah. and could at least theoretically draw conscripts. What? Which I never did, but that's insane. <laughs> yeah, that's like overtly just military shit. What the hell? <laughs> okay. Oh, jeez. So, so this six, like this operation where they rescue the hostages, they storm the plane, 
you know, they're they're sneaking, they're doing like splinter cell shit. Yeah. <laughs> like they like basically do this operation and it goes off really well. Like they and it's a huge defeat for the RAF, right? Yeah, it's it's easily like one of the most successful operations of any spec op group ever. There were absolutely no casualties. And I think not even um there were not even really injuries. It just went smooth as freaking balls. Yeah. Which weird, but at the same time, yeah, they had a group of the best paramilitaries and the second generation wasn't wasn't actually that well trained and everything. I don't know. I can believe it. Yeah, like I think not all of the second generation got to go through the Jordanian trainings. Precisely. And on top of that, it's not like those trainings were super relevant to what they were doing. Um, well, I was going to say there was this famous incident. And then I want to say, I, I forget who it was. Maybe that it was like a combination of like, do you remember in the 70s, right around this time, there was a famous case where like the Israelis stormed a plane and they rescued everyone? Mm-hmm. Yes. I forget the circumstances, but like the point was like both of these operations were like sort of like the tides were turning for like Euro terrorism and international terrorism, where like this just wasn't working anymore. Like if you were going to hijack a plane, they would just storm it and kill you. It also kind of like sparked enthusiasm for these um, strange paramilitary groups, right? Yes. They were kind of considered heroes. If I remember correctly, there's like um, every year there's uh, SWAT games where different SWAT teams from different countries fight against each other in a weird Takeshi Castle style abomination. <laughs> And um, one year, the GSG-9 actually won in every single one of 18 categories. Crazy. So yeah, these guys are pretty insane in general. The, uh, the book I mentioned where it was my first exposure to the RAF, the Rainbow Six novel by Tom Clancy, they figure prominently in the novel where theoretically it's like an international team of like members from each of these different paramilitaries and they like in the novel, they, you know, respond to different counter like terrorist events, like it's both like really good on details and kind of asinine on the flop, like <laughs> either way, like interesting stuff, like just, you're right, like glorification of what are essentially death squads, but we call them SWAT teams, right? It's like such an interesting way to frame it. Yep. I w we had TV shows about that shit, even like, this was like 40 years later, right? Yeah. When I grew up. It was definitely a cultural entity. Like, it's definitely a thing that all young men were pretty much aware of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, the failure of this hijacked plane was, it was, how, like, how, how should we say it completely dashed their hopes of freeing the first generation. Yep. So we reached what's known as the death night. What's the term in German? Todesnacht. Mm -hmm. It's the exact same. Um, what, what ends up happening on the death night? Supposedly, 
Bada and Raspe, they shoot themselves, right? I think Bada is even said to have shot himself in the neck, which is quite a weird way again to shoot yourself, but who am I to judge? And um, Möller, as we've mentioned, stabbed herself four times with a knife and survived. And Celine, um, she hung herself, allegedly. Mm. And they're all found on the next day only. Yes. And it's interesting because the film takes an interesting stance on this. Cause... It's ambivalent, right? The film doesn't really show them doing it at all. They're just found and it's never really clearly stated that they did kill themselves. Correct. Though they did, the film does depict uh, the second generation sneaking them weapons into the prison, mm -hmm. which I think they, I mean, they did recover the hollow books where like the guns were like hidden within. This is true. I'm pretty sure the fact that the second gen gave them weapons is uh, well documented. Though, again, it's like, okay, well, if the police are going to kill them, they might as well do that part too. <laughs> like, okay, what are we to make of this? Do you think that they killed themselves? Because I kind of do. I, I kind of do think they killed themselves. Well, the, never, the narrative that the movie makes, right, yeah. is um, that they just want a choice yeah they want to decide when they die and they don't want to die um, by the hand of a cop i'm not sure whether that's really accurate or represents what they thought at the time but i can imagine suicide for a different reason and that is that they were both completely disillusioned with what they had done and also like wildly, just wildly not happy with how the second generation had done things. Yeah. The latter one I think is uh, pretty big because they started the Red Army faction, as you already mentioned in the very beginning of the podcast, probably hoping that like different cells would pick off and it would sort of become its own thing, right? Even maybe after their death or like after their jailed no mm -hmm. so i think this pretty much showed him that no like this is likely a dead end the second generation hasn't succeeded which ironically there was a third generation then and probably there's something akin to a fourth too though it's pretty farcical at this point but yeah it did go on yeah no i i agree i think that there was definitely an element of disillusionment as to whether you know they framed it as like controlling their own destiny or just like something else you know i don't think they left suicide notes i don't think nah that is one strange thing and honestly um i can kind of imagine ensling offing herself right because it would fit very well with her ideas of martyrdom her history of christianity there's even an interview with her dad both in the movies uh, both in the movie and it actually exists in reality as well. You can find it on YouTube. It's by ZDF, where he says that um, he thinks his daughter Gudrun kind of wants to be a martyr figure. Mm. So for Enslin, pretty sure she killed herself. Um, for Möller, doubtful. And Bada and Jasper, I'm kind of completely ambivalent about. 
I think they could have uh, killed themselves and there were some very legitimate reasons. They could have also been clipped. It's not that wild a thesis. So Mueller lived. Did she ever make any statements about it? She did. And she is extremely careful in uh, what she says. She certainly disputes the... um, she certainly disputes the standard media narrative, but she's also not really the smoking gun we need to make the argument that, for example, Bada and Jasper, they didn't shoot themselves. Yeah, yeah. Like, I don't, I, again, I don't know Andreas Bader necessarily, but he doesn't strike me as the type of dude to kill himself. I actually tend to agree, yeah. But then on the flip side, it's like, well, if the whole group is doing it, I could maybe see. And if they decided, you know, maybe, I don't know. And also under torture, like no matter how strong your personality may be or seem, it's really only a question of time until you fall apart. No one can resist this by power of sheer will. It's simply impossible. Yeah, it's true. So essentially, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are conspiracy theories and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm actually not sure about this, but I do get the impression that there were more theories about Ulrike being killed mm-hmm. and less about the rest of the group, but still... That is true. Still, to some extent, like there are theories that they were all murdered. Also weird because we agreed, right, that we think Ulrike is probably the most likely to have killed herself, but... So many people think uh, she didn't. Yeah. One interesting one perspective you could take is that um, Meinhof might have not been a victim of like um, a German police assassination or something like that. It could have also been Red Army faction internal. Mm. You know, Enslin did consider her a traitor. I'm pretty sure about that. Don't think it went down like it did in the movie with a snarky remark, but I do think Enslin and um, Meinhof had a huge falling out. I do think the film depicts them kind of pushing her into it, right? Exactly. That is what I would say too. It's almost like she was bullied into suicide. And then they do, and this is the film, so who knows, but like they depict them as almost like benefiting from Ulrike's death. They did, in fact. In the trial, right? They were able to be like, look, like you're, you know, killing us or whatever. Yeah. Interesting. Also gave them a big publicity boost, of course, right? Yeah. That they're in mortal danger all the time. And this is why they need to be freed because Ulrike has already been killed. Yeah. So the film, I think, does make it ambiguous, which I like, but they do, I think, lean towards they killed themselves. I would say so too, yeah. That's what the film implies. Which I think is probably correct. At least the preponderance of the evidence probably points in that direction. Yep, I agree, definitely. Like I said, the only case that's really absolutely striking to me is uh, Möller, but it's also not impossible that she attempted to kill herself with that knife. Yeah, and who knows that it could have been, you know, a certain, like, you know, 
some of them kill themselves. You will, okay. Earlier in the film, Enslin tells two priests that if she were to be killed, it would be people coming in from outside the prison, as in, you know, like a paramilitary or something. And that is sort of the theory, right? Yeah, holy shit. Actually, we skipped over that. That is really interesting that you mentioned that because I also had that in my notes. This is what um, Enslin and Bada reveal after the cross-examination, right? Yeah, Enslin mm -hmm. talks to the priest. Bada also has like his only lucid moment in the entire movie when he says, <laughs> which states profit from an escalation of violence? Some may even wish for it. And then if you put this together with what Enslin says before, the orders come from outside. The relationship between the U.S. and Germany, and then it goes on into the next sentence. That's some relatively chilling stuff here. That's honestly either like Stefan Aust or the director, in my opinion, making a really strong hint towards there being some kind of outside factor. Yes, exactly. And like, on top of that, we have to really consider the possibility that like, the authorities might have known or at least allowed them to commit suicide mm -hmm. to solve a problem, right? And like, there's a distinct possibility that like them being smuggled weapons in was allowed because those weapons could have only ever been leveraged against themselves, really. They're not gonna shoot their way out of the prison. I do believe that too. I think it's extremely strange and somewhat unrealistic that they would not find weapons which were so, like, obviously in those books. You had to flip through them once, right, to really see it. Yeah. And, like, it's kind of, like, almost not exactly like an Epstein thing, but it's just, like, on the face of it, it's absurd that they shot themselves in their prison cells with guns that they had smuggled in. Like, that just sounds insane. <laughs> mm -hmm. I also see a parallel here to the uh, Schleier case. I'll talk a little bit about it later, but isn't it really strange that Schleier was like um, a hostage for, I think, more than five weeks? It's a really long hostage situation, like really long. It was like 40, yeah, 40 days or something, like crazy. And they never did try to free him that much because i think if they had really put their mind to getting to schleier they could have probably done that so i think they might have had a similar relationship to the red army faction killing themselves and as you said might have just turned a blind eye to towards the weapons joe have you ever seen the movie state of siege oh no never heard of that oh man oh man you would love that one too sorry i'm not trying to just load you up with recommendations, but it's a Costa Gavras movie where like it depicts when the Dupamaros captured a CIA officer and they famously held him hostage to, I think, free some prisoners. I think a similar situation. That sounds sick as fuck. It's such a good movie, but like they end up killing the guy, right? Dan Mitrioni, mm -hmm. who famously taught torture all over Latin America. He was friends with Jim Jones. I can't refrain from bringing it up every time I can. <laughs> the um, 70s French movie you're talking about, right? Correct. Nice, I found it. It's so good. Um, in that movie, 
it's really good. But they depict at a certain point both the kidnappers and the kidnapped sort of like smoking cigarettes and just being like, oh, fuck, we're both kind of stuck in this situation. I'm going to be killed and you're going to be hunted down. And like <laughs> neither of like we're both getting completely fucked by our governments in this situation. Like they are not going to like pull strings and get me out of this. Yep. And it's just like the uh, cycle of violence continues. And like the guys on the ground on both sides are like legitimately almost like, <laughs> like in that situation have more in common even than like their respective sides. It is a really weird relationship. Right? It's almost like kind of like cops and criminals having a lot in common. Like, mm -hmm. but the Bader Meinhof complex movie ends with essentially depicting the group dumping the body of Schleyer. Mm -hmm. They do shoot him. Right. I mean, do they depict shooting him in the movie? No, I don't think so. I don't think it's shown. And it's just like, it shows like an ignominious end to Schleyer and like the RAF of course continues, but like in this stunted form. And it's just like, it shows that like the final note of the film sort of strikes a chord with like the total futility of this for like everyone involved, except maybe like the forces of greed that just keep winning no matter what, right? Yep. Definitely agree with that. I was the first back on the farm. Possibility of me. While it took a leaf, it lives and dies by his deed. And the kids, people literized. The Holgermines Commando He was my brother I'd do anything for him Back on the farm Back on the farm There's a shadow of doubt In this house that we're Back on the farm Back on the nest
The movie is super entertaining. It's also from like a cinematic cinematography standpoint. It's pretty good. It's a good watch. Mm -hmm. And honestly, historically, this is like mighty fine. There's some really cool details in there. So characters aren't that flat. You know, you can really like, um, you can relate, watch their growth. It's generally just a very good movie. It definitely rewarded multiple viewings. Like the more I knew about the group, the more I got out of it, which is like, for me, a sign that it's like a really pretty good movie, actually. Oh, yeah. So maybe before I, um, before I reveal my last few spicy notes on the yeah. uh, Gladio and German politics connections, I wanted to ask you about um, the director and the producer of this movie. You dug into his uh, background, didn't you? Yes, I didn't necessarily like find like, oh, like a super crazy thing, but I did see a couple things that I did just want to bring up. Um, the director, Uli uh, Edel, am I saying that right? Edel. Edel. Mm -hmm, perfect. He, interestingly, he directed a bunch of US television, usually just, you know, one episode, two episodes out of a season. He did an episode of Twin Peaks, which is interesting. He did an episode of Homicide, which was the earlier show to The Wire. Oh, shit. I didn't know about that. Yeah. He had directed a couple episodes of the prison show Oz. He directed, I think, the entire season of this TV series, The Mists of Avalon. That sounds fantastic. Which is like, you know, that classic, like early 2000s, like TV fantasy, like, but it was also adapted from the Marion Zimmer Bradley novels. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Marion Zimmer Bradley, but she was a child abuser and she was married to a prolific pedophile. Wow. Female child abuser. That's nice. You don't get this very often. Right. And reportedly, some of that is actually kind of leak. It kind of leaks into some of her novels, but I'm not trying to say anything about Mr. Edel. But he also did direct a movie called Christine F. about a 14-year-old female junkie. He directed a movie about Rasputin and Houdini. The name of a rose, too, right? Yeah, I think so interesting i didn't i didn't realize but that's interesting that he adapted that the the movie mentioned christiane f is actually one of like the most famous uh, german movies i think everyone's seen it really i was gonna ask you about that because i hadn't heard of it 
it's definitely considered a it's definitely considered a classic and more of a like gritty realist tale of drug culture in germany it's generally viewed very positively this movie it's it definitely sounded like almost like a train spotting but like less fun type of movie they definitely much less fun this movie is crushing like so we it's interesting right because he definitely like covers salacious kind of crazy kind of out there topics and like i i don't know like i should check out that movie like there's not really like i'm not trying to say that this director is sus it's just this is an interesting director right could also be the very opposite if you think about it right Mm-hmm. could also be that uh, this guy is talking about these topics because he has an interest in them that is not so dissimilar to us. Yeah. Which would explain why where so many like many weird coincidences in this um, film about the Red Army faction. Like, for example, why would you explicitly include that agents of um, Savak were at the demonstrations? It's a pretty thing to exp- it's a pretty weird thing to explicitly put into your movies to make people aware that like foreign intelligence services are operating in Germany. Yeah. Is that, do you think that's just like him being faithful to the source material of the book or do you think? I do think it's just that. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't really think that Uli Edel is um, trying to give us some secret hints as <laughs> to the true history of a red army faction. In fact, I think, in some ways he also doesn't do them justice because he really plays up like the rock music and free sex and like egotistical angle of the group and maybe doesn't really touch their ideology that much that's a good point but in generally it's a very faithful film now i did have a couple things on the producer and i know that you knew a little bit more about him so i'll go first um this is burns Eichinger, Eichinger, how do you... Eichinger. Eichinger. Yeah, that's nice. I'm, I'm yeah, not going <laughs> to, that's rough. Okay. So he produced probably some, like one of the funniest lists of movies I've seen. It's bizarre, yeah. He, he has this bizarre mixture of highbrow and lowbrow stuff. Like, first of all, notably, he produced the never ending story. Mm-hmm. Which is just like weird by the way also one of the most beloved films in uh, germany not just in the u.s really interesting Mm -hmm. well i mean i could see that if there was a german producer but like that's interesting still um he also produced like a ian McEwen like adaptation he i think he actually bought the rights to the fantastic four (laughs) which is partially why the fantastic four has been in this weird limbo while they're currently remaking virtually every superhero movie, they only really did Fantastic Four, you know. So this is actually one good thing he did, right? He's <laughs> cock-blocking them from making even more superhero movies. That's kind of neat. Though he did, of course, I think he made a shitty German version, and then I think he also produced the uh, early 2000s Fantastic Four movie that did come out, which I think was hideous i didn't see it but i heard it was pretty bad he this guy produced the resident evil movies yep which i did always wonder why they had this like bizarre european vibe 
when they're supposed to be set in Japan, but also even in the video <laughs> games, it's kind of nebulous. Like, yep. Because <laughs> like those movies are like weirdly Russian, almost. Like I don't, I don't know what's going on. Ah, I feel you. Uh, he produced Perfume, the story of a murderer, which I've heard is pretty good. I haven't seen. Also oh, very famous. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it that much. Oh really? Well, I was curious about it, but I could see how it could like not be as good. He also produced the another video game adaptation of DOA Dead or Alive, which looks like if you look at the cover of it, it almost looks like a porn film. <laughs> it's like <laughs> such lowbrow trash. But he did also make a movie called Pornorama, so yeah, it's not that strange. Now, what did you know about this guy? So interestingly, right as a German, you know this guy not necessarily from all the movies you just mentioned but from really like horrifically bad comedies hmm. most famous of all is uh they shoot his money too which is probably one of the most racist films ever concocted by german cinema really? it's basically just taking the piss out of native americans for like 90 minutes oh, it's crazy then there's um erkan and stefan it's a comedy duo. It's just two fucking middle-class white guys who pretend to be uh, Turkish and they invent their own slang. It's really, really racist. And oh. pretty much everyone, everything he makes is in that vein. He also does what I can only really call sex comedy, which is like a version of a rom-com, but with a lot of sex involved that isn't really steamy or interesting but just like extremely generic and boring yeah one the one good movie he did make um aside from bader meinhof is called um i think elementary particles in english and it's based on the novel by michelle welbeck oh that movie is crazy i would recommend that one if any interesting yeah he did also direct uh last exit to brooklyn i know that was a interesting so he does this like every 10 years maybe he does like a highbrow film <laughs> and then he just fucking pumps out this shit and i think he made a lot of money of it and in my opinion eichinger is probably one of the reasons that german cinema in general just completely went to shit <laughs> this, is, this is just me talking but yeah. out of all the european like um cinema germany's is just by far the worst dude it's, it's <laughs> incestuous like you see all the popular movies get state funding and everything else is just fucked we have like we have almost no independent movie scenes like all the big movies are some variation of a rom-com or this is the newest genre in germany things you steal from france so just French <laughs> comedies, but with German actors, and it's the exact same. Yeah, it's... Um, That's so funny. It's desperate landscape. <laughs> what are you saying? That uh, widespread neoliberalism doesn't exactly foster good cultural development? <laughs> yeah, one could say that, yeah. Oh, geez. It's especially, like, tragic because Germany was at one point, like, leading in cinema, right? Mm-hmm. 19 um germany 1920s cinema is 
absolutely beautiful like i'm in completely in love with 20s cinema and the 30s they also have fucking great movies even like i'd say up until the late nine uh, up until the late 80s or something we still had some like very good um high grossing directors but it's been very shitty last 20 years yeah it almost tracks with like what happened to like different pop music in each country where it's all homogenized into like pure shit <laughs> yep i mean bernd eichinger right he started with adapting fucking samuel beckett of all yeah. people and then ends up being like the kingpin of racist comedy <laughs> Oh, man, you could almost do like a history of modern Germany through this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah, that's true. Film is a good film is a pretty good metaphor for the recent history of Germany. All right. So Joe and I were discussing and we decided it would not be profitable to keep going through the rest of the second and third generation of the RAF. But there are just a couple notes where it's worth just mentioning some of their actions. Uh, they killed the CEO of a German aerospace company. In I had and I don't have any proof for this, but some of their later actions feel to me like they could, some of them, be like for hire, or like some form of like almost like high level industrial like espionage or not espionage but like that's a really cool theory right because they're they there's a phase where they're almost killing executives and it's just mm -hmm. like that's not anything the masses or the workers give a shit about i mean a couple of them maybe but like they kill they blow up the head of the head of deutsche bank <laughs> like you know like these are not actions that make sense for an urban guerrilla to be doing like in the 90s, you know what I'm saying? Those are also not like direct actions of anti-imperialism, like bombing a US, um, US military building, right? Yes, but at the same time, there are a couple actions that do kind of fit that framework because they like in 1991, they shot and killed the leader of the the Truhans organization, mm -hmm. which, correct me if I'm wrong here, but this was essentially the organization that was privatizing the GDR's state economy. That's completely correct, yeah. And I read the communique for that action. And I would say to people who are interested that they, the RAF, knew exactly what was going to happen with privatization and they justified killing this guy because it would be a widespread just complete rape of east germany and just basically a theft which was correct right that is exactly what then happened to eastern germany so like again we're like do you we got do you gotta hand it to the raf <laughs> i think this case is even a bit weirder this is like another one of our self-fulfilling prophecies like we already talked about with the police state right so a lot of people don't know this but some historians actually consider um 
the woman that Van later was head of Treuhand to have been an even more raging neoliberal than Rohwedder, who was the guy that they killed. Interesting. So by clipping the head of Treuhand, they caused like an even worse person <laughs> to take over. And this might have actually worsened the situation of the East Germans like even more. Interesting. Because it's too simplistic to just say, if you do terrorism, things will only get worse. But there is in some ways a pattern. <laughs> if you do certain terrorist actions, it seems like West Germany would just become more of what they were, which is like a police state. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, we know that there was a precedent for the police running terrorist organizations in, say, czarist Russia. Like, we know that they were essentially running one of those organizations. Like, we start to get into, like, this weird territory where, like, like it's if not by the first generation by the second or third are they are these guys even doing what they say they are do they even care about the things you know mm -hmm. it's it's like a liminal territory i think yeah for sure and they also like um, the troy hunt killings those were freaking big but mm -hmm. generally like people did not care about the Red Army faction that much after the 70s. Yeah. It wasn't really, um, people still, of course, knew who they were, but they associated them mostly with Bader and Meinhof, not with the second nor with the third generation. Interesting. And, okay, so the head of the Deutsche Bank, I think his name was Alfred Herrhausen. And... <laughs> Again, not to just bring up the LaRouche people again, and I'm not going to go through all their evidence or whatever, but they claim that the RAF didn't kill him, period. That they, like, literally didn't do it. <laughs> and to make that point, and make of this what you will, they actually cite Colonel L. Fletcher Prouty. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, let's see here. They, Colonel Prouty, famously of the JFK assassination lore, he said that the RAF didn't kill Herrhausen. He also says that the same people, which is to say, like, not the RAF, but the same group of assassins killed uh, Prime Minister Aldo Moro. I've heard that too, yeah. They also killed Swedish Prime Minister... Olaf Palme, a few other people. And like, <laughs> there is a quote here, I'll read this part from Colonel Prouty. People like Alfred Herrhausen are killed for big reasons. The people that order such big executions at the highest levels feel sanctified and justified when they order such an act. Herrhausen was not under the thumb of the city of London. Wow. <laughs> Now, I don't think you need to swallow the full LaRouche pill that, like, England secretly runs the world and blah, 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 the queen runs the drug trade to, I don't think you have to go full bore to at least consider the idea that some of these assassinations were not actually done by the groups they said they were. Yep. Right. As you mentioned, right, 
they took Schleier to um, to Brussels. We we know for sure that the police were searching for the second generation, right? Yeah. And then they had like tripled their budget in the um, years leading up to this. So when they really did want to find the Red Army faction members, they did so in record time. But they couldn't find them for like five weeks when they held one of the most important German bosses of industry. Yeah, sorry, I don't believe that for one minute. And they could find the groups that did receive training, but they couldn't find the generations that didn't receive training. Mm -hmm. Like, and the second and third generation operating with vastly fewer resources in terms of like sympathizers, places to stay, safe houses. Like, something doesn't add up, right? Yeah, I'll be completely honest. The, the second generation, I kind of get everything that happens after is just nebulous to me. Yeah. And I don't think there's anyone who is like, um, it's like a concrete authority on this. Most people, like most historians that I've read, they mostly deal with, with the first and second generation, which is kind of a shame, to be honest. But that's how it is. I know. I'm very interested in the second and third. But like, like you said, there's just not good sources it's very nebulous. We really enter like almost like a shadow world. If you want to talk about contemporary stuff, I got some contemporary stuff for you. Yeah. Because all of what I'm going to lay down for you now, none of this was known until 2005. Yes. So like way, 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 way later than um, when it actually went down. I'm going to talk about Peter Urbach, Verena Becker, and the Verfassungsschutz. It's now relatively widely acknowledged, right, that Peter Urbach was at the very least like a provocateur. We know that he delivered bombs, Molotov cocktails. This is what he was most famous for, actually. Um, weapons, including like assault weapons and other materials to various terrorist orgs, most notably the Red Army faction, but there were others. Let me ask you, Joe. So he wasn't a member of the RAF, right? He was just a guy that supplied them. Exactly. He wasn't an official member of, um, I think he was a member of none of these terrorist groups, actually. Yeah. Next to the Red Army faction, he also supplied two bombs to the Tupamaros West Berlin, who planned to blow up the Jewish Gemeindehaus. This is one of my favorite stories because it's so insane. So the bombs, in fact, never went off. Apparently, because we had like a defunct detonator capsule. If we are to believe this story, right? Mm -hmm. And the only logical conclusion is that Urbach and the Verfassungsschutz were ready to sacrifice more than 200 people in the Jewish Gemeindehaus by supplying those bombs to the Tupamaros because they couldn't have known about the um, defunct detonator capsules. It was just from age. They weren't manipulated or anything. Now, Joe, let me ask you, like, why would the Tupamaros try to blow up a Jewish center? That doesn't make sense to me. Well, this was because um, many in the German leftist movement were trying to... Um, were trying to ally themselves with Palestinians, basically. 
mm. and they considered most of the um most of the higher ups of the israelis to be horrible zionists and basically agents of uh, imperialism there's actually pretty big anti-semitism in the 68 student movement left that's something that is also swept under the rug very often interesting now let me ask you not to get too sidetracked but is this tupamaros movement are these are the people involved in this in the west berlin section are they actually south american or are these not at all both are if you wanted to say it in modern terms pretty much lapas <laughs> okay well i feel way less uh freaked out <laughs> knowing that it's not actually the tupamaros uh proper <laughs> yeah but they were definitely inspired by the tupamaros though okay and um even more insane than the german state basically sponsoring the bombing of a jewish community is what happens afterward after the suspects were apprehended peter urbach had of course just ratted them out right the police sent a detailed report to the Staatsanwaltschaft, which is our district attorneys, basically. Mm -hmm. The district attorneys never pressed charges. In an interview, they asked the head of police, who had filed the report himself, why they never did that. He said, I don't know. The planned and almost successful murder of more than 200 people, most of them Jews, the other politicians, was not prosecuted in any way, nor is it even commonly known in Germany today. Yeah, I had never heard of this. Interesting. Now, there is at least one person in the Tupamaros group who claims that he knew the bomb was not going to go off. Others said the complete opposite. Yeah, I think that guy's just trying to save his ass, to be honest. <laughs> I think no one involved knew that these bombs weren't going to go off. But there's another hint, which maybe points in that direction. And that is that one of my favorite groups, the Hash Rebellen, which of course means Hash Rebels, <laughs> they had also received a defunct bomb from the same Peter Urbach. And it seems this time it was even an intentional dud which the rebels, by the way, didn't know. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, they were surprised. So the hash rebels, now that sounds a whole lot like, that sounds like a, some kind of hippie thing. Like, uh, is that referring to hash the drug? Yeah, it's referring to hash the drug. Okay, that, that doesn't sound that serious. Okay, yeah. But they were closer to maybe uh, like a cultural movement like the hippies than other groups were. I think the hash rebels, interesting, they came out of the German blues scene, if I remember correctly. And if you want, I'll give you a very short rundown of some of my favorite terror groups that don't get any attention. Yeah. So there's the red cells, right? They were active at least until the late 90s, probably longer. They had one sub-organization, which was called Rote Zora, which was just exclusively women. 100% female terrorist organization. We've already mentioned the Tupamaros uh, West Berlin, who really didn't do that much besides um, that one thing with uh, Jewish Gemeindehaus. And then we have uh, Bewegung 2. Juni, movement 2nd of June, in reference to Onesorg. Hmm. 
Now my two favorites. Uh, the first group is called the Spaß Guerrilla, which just means fun guerrilla. And they were basically a non-violent terrorist group. Sounds kind of um, antithetical at first, but they did stuff like uh, throwing cakes and shit, you know, like a bit public outrage, a bit getting into the press, uh, but never really harmed anyone. It sounds fun. <laughs> and to be honest, they also, they never really had any impact. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty sure at some point my dad was trying to get in, but they were already dying off. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> and then last, I say for best for last, the Hash Rebels, which their actual name is Zentralrat der Umherschweifenden Hashrebellen, which means Central Committee of Vagabond Hash Rebels. Now, you said they sound kind of like hippies. They were pretty serious. Some of their members later joined the Red Army faction or the movement 2nd of June. So they were ready for violence, basically. And uh, the bombings they had planned probably would have injured a few people had they went off. Interesting. So with these other groups, I feel like you do kind of see how far you get if you don't maybe have state backing of one state or the other. Yeah, that's a very nice hypothesis. I like this. And it also shows you, right, that most of the time, it's not as simple as the Red Army faction is an op. Mm -hmm. No, it's not an op. Most people had like genuine, sincere beliefs, right? We even know for a fact that there were a few other terrorist groups who also kind of sprung up organically. But something that uh, springs up organically can still be molded or nudged in a certain direction. Yes. And I think this is maybe what was going on. I, I really like that. Because like, I don't get the impression that most of the participants in the RAF were like insincere. I think there are a couple mm -hmm. that were like maybe informants or provocateurs, but... Yeah. And I think some of them tagged on just for the adrenaline, right? Yes, I think that there is not a, like, there's a huge element of, like, adventurism and all of the uh, motives that go along with that. Um, I will say for the listeners, the RAF did their last action in 1993, but they would not formally dissolve until 1998. Just as a little footnote there. So... Since I already mentioned it, mm -hmm. if you really, really wanted to claim that the Red Army faction is an AWP, let me give you the best <laughs> argument that I can give you. Okay. There's a politologist, his name is uh, Wolfgang Krauser. He was the guy who first uh, publicized Urbach's strange connections, right? Mm. This guy, he also made another allegation which had much less publicity, which is that uh, second generation Verena Becker may have been the actual executor of Siegfried Buback. Previously, it has always been uh, believed that this was Stefan Wisniewski, who had also been trialed for that. Mm. Now, Krauser, he had even personally taken part in the re-examination trial of Verena Becker. And there, he got the very strange impression that the state slash the prosecution was defending Verena Becker. 
makes absolutely no sense at all. Why would the prosecution defend the one they're prosecuting, right? Yeah, why would they do that? It was then later revealed that Verena Becker too worked for the Verfassungsschutz. <laughs> oh. If you check the source on Wikipedia, you get a 404. <laughs> That's neat, right? <laughs> so Krauser, who was pretty much like the only person talking about this, he wrote an entire book about the affair. In an interview, he revealed that the back then head of the Verfassungsschutz knew that Verena was the shooter all along. Interesting. The court, however, came to the opposite conclusion. <laughs> she got slapped with only four years, which was then reduced to one and a half years on probation. <laughs> Wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that an informant got super lenient sentencing? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Interesting. And to finish this little uh, Gladio connection chapter. I have a quote. This quote is from um, Bommy Baumann. He was actually a terrorist as well. Bommy Baumann, he was not just tapped into the uh, student movement. He was also part of various organizations. And uh, Bommy Baumann is like one of the very few anarchists from that area that I respect. He always speaks his mind as it's as if he has no subtext. It's very funny. He says, <laughs> The Red Army faction doesn't talk, and the state isn't opening its archives. I don't understand that. Something's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and he says this under oath in court. Interesting. I mean, like, he's right, though. Like, one side, like, the, both sides wouldn't be doing that unless there was something. What is that something? Mm -hmm. There's only so many things that could be right yep i agree <laughs> interesting so i'm getting i'm getting the distinct impression that a lot of different people found the raf to be very useful for very different reasons this is one of the last points i want to make and it's pretty much exactly what you said in my opinion the red army faction was a bit of a springboard. It was like a bit of a pipeline. I call this the dark rabbit hole of the 86th generation. So let's talk about the lawyers for a second, right? The lawyer, they're pretty important to the story. We haven't talked about them enough. Yeah. Let's get into the nitty gritty. So let's start off with Horst Mahler because um, she's so important to the Red Army faction story. And he's also probably my favorite person in terms of insanity in this whole story he's so freaking nuts so we've already talked about the scene where Mahler basically shows up and he has everything set up and he has weapons and explosive and an organization structure and if you wanted to be devil's advocate you could either say this guy's obviously Verfassungsschutz or you could say this guy's obviously trying to set some sort of trap right when someone hands you a weapon and a plan, they're probably a fed. Everyone knows that, right? Yeah. Well, what the movie leaves out is that Mahler actually assisted previously with the planning of Bader's escape. So he's already very much tied in with the Red Army faction. It's not as if he just showed up out of nothing. Hmm. 
I think we need to talk a bit about the biography of Horst because that Horst guy, he is fucking complicated. His dad, as far as I know, was a pure, unadulted, hardcore Nazi. <laughs> he shot himself in 1949, which surely was traumatic for his son. Nazi ideology was still ruled supreme in his household. But for absolutely inexplicable reasons, young Horst Mahler, only 13 years old, joins the FDJ, which is a communist youth league. Mm. While studying law, he joined the Landsmannschaft Thuringinger. This is one of the many Burschenschaften in Germany, which is basically a fraternity, but with a rights land. And Thuringia is especially famous because they are a far, far right fraternity who has connections to AFD today. Oh man, do they really wear those stupid hats? Yes, they do wear stupid hats, yeah. Holy cow. Never understood that thing. <laughs> So he just, he joins every single party in his life. Okay, 1965, going from the neo-Nazi Burschenschaft, he joins the SPD. This would prove very unfruitful because the SPD requested of all its members that they exit what uh, they called was Schlagende Studentenverbindungen, which just means like fraternities with guys who do fencing and stuff. And so he had to leave. Because <laughs> fencing, because fencing is oh, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but in Germany, they're like that's like very tied to being like conservative, right? I would say it's definitely very tied to being like, upper echelons of society. I don't know a single normal person who does that. Interesting. I do think it's tied to um, conservatism to some degree. Yeah. Yeah, because I know a lot of the early Nazis all had like those dueling scars and everything. That's all I really know though. Interesting. So after joining the SPD, right, and being automatically kicked out of a fraternity, he then joins the German Socialist Student League, which we've been talking about pretty much all day. Yeah. <laughs> and here it comes. <laughs> the SPD, yet fucking again, requests of all of its members that they either leave the party or leave the German Socialist Student League. Interesting. These things are called Unvereinbarkeitsbeschlüsse and they're still active today. And not a single party has as many of them as the SPD does. So these pretty much bar you from membership. What, yeah, why is that? The SPD lead would just like pick a few organizations, right? And they would say, you can't be a card-carrying SPD member, but also be part of this organization. Just, just doesn't work. And they could force you by law to leave that organization or leave a party. Why, why is that? Well, they would argue, I think the SPD would argue that um, these groups were just incompatible with maybe the party platform or ideology or morality. Um, lots of the groups that the SPD doesn't accept are like uh, hardcore conservative groups, but also some are uh, far left groups. So pretty much it's something that helps um, keep the party line, right? Yeah, that makes sense. 
So Mahler, while he was routinely defending members of uh, student left in their criminal cases, he also defended Thyssenbank in dozens of cases of corruption and embezzlement. He was always leading kind of a weird double life, that one. <laughs> After, I think, uh, 64, he was apparently in contact with both the GDR and Soviet Union, of which we know practically nothing. But he was still doing pretty exceptionally work defending the various student protesters and even defending uh, Benno Onesok's family. Hmm. But as it has to happen, he is caught in the year 1960 for his complicity with the Red Army faction and he's jailed for 40 years. Sorry, and he's jailed for 14 years, just pretty fucking hefty. Yeah, that does undermine to a certain degree the idea of him being in the pocket. It doesn't necessarily undermine the idea that he was maybe a double agent, but it does undermine the idea that he was just an out and out provocateur. Yep. Yeah, that I also don't believe. Yeah. Well, okay, I'll, I'll refrain from asking the total question. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I'll get there. I'll get there. This <laughs> lawyer, by the way, uh, was was Otto Schilly, who I'll be talking about next, because Schilly is also super interesting. Mm -hmm. So um, Mahler, he kind of didn't like the Red Army faction anymore. He disavows them and is then officially kicked out in 1974. He then reorients himself again, politically, to Maoism. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this guy. So after 10 years of jail, his new lawyer manages to get him out on probation. And that lawyer's name? Why, it was Gerhard Schröder. Yes, Gerhard Schröder, later Chancellor of Germany, infamous for his corruption, for Hartz IV and for sucking up to Putin. Interesting. He was apparently a personal friend because Schroeder also helped him get his lawyer license back, which was pretty big. He could practice again. It's it's almost astounding that like <laughs> that like he would ever be able to practice law after being in the RAF. <laughs> so Mahler yet again changes tone suddenly, and he now tries to warm up to the um, new up-and-coming Green Party. Like this lasts very, very shortly, and he changes his tenor again, and now he cuddles up to the FDP, which we've uh, mm -hmm. mentioned previously. At this point, it's kind of a neoliberal party. <laughs> but none of that would last, right? Until <laughs> he finally found his true love. And this one, he's going to stick with this one. Trust me. In 1998, he helped found the movement for our country. Their slogan, Germany needs to stay German. <laughs> <laughs> so he finally nests in the festering neo-Nazi scene of the late 90s and quickly rises to be their most prominent lawyer. I think personally, he was indispensable in stopping the um, ban of the NPD, Germany's biggest neo-Nazi party, which has its own connections to the Verfassungsschutz, if you really want to just ruin your day, you can Google <laughs> NSU murders and uh, Sachsensumpf. That's S-A-C-H-S-E-N-S-U-M-P-F. There's also an English Wikipedia article I've checked. 
we don't have time to go into these, but these are some of the most fucked up intelligence connections you'll find in Germany. Yeah. Like you were telling me about these off mic and like, it was like, oh, oh no. <laughs> so we're now almost done with uh, Horst Mahler because he is slowly go he is slowly going towards his demise. In 2003, he leaves the uh, neo-Nazi party, not because he doesn't like being a Nazi, but rather because those particular Nazis are not extreme enough for him, <laughs> which tells you a lot about his views. He says, this is a quote, the NPD is a parliamentary party and parliamentarism is doomed. Me going back to the old me. <laughs> true, yeah, he's going back to the old, that's true. So he fries his brain, right? Reading Hegel for 10 years in jail. Oh no. And he concocts his own weird philosophy with a German Judaic dialectic. And you can probably imagine what role the Jews played in this dialectic. Hint, it wasn't very nice. <laughs> when reading Hegel goes wrong. So after like repeatedly threatening the life of judges and jurors and just constantly making anti-Semitic remarks in court. <laughs> yes, yet again, his license suspended, but the death threats don't stop. His uh, drivel about the Fourth Reich and the, he says uh, the protocols of the elders of Zion are correct, but I do acknowledge they're fake. They're still correct. But <laughs> Actually, a lot of German far-right people still believe this believe that the protocols are fake but true exactly yeah i mean like i guess that's the only other option like okay yeah it's, uh, that's that's really interesting <laughs> so in the following years he's convicted multiple times for volksverhetzung which is just the german very nazi like way of saying hate speech yeah. and today he's still alive actually sick as a bird, literally writing letters to Viktor Orban, pleading, and at least one of his legs is amputated. So he just basically, at, at a certain point, he just became a complete prank. Yeah. And absolutely. It says a lot about you where you decide when he became a crank, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you, you're not wrong in that he did go back to like, to like completely refusing any form of parliamentarism, right? So in that way, he did go full circle. But yeah, I think he just fried his brain on Hegel, man. This is too much. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so with Mahler, what are we looking at? Are we looking at a guy who just tried to be an operative for someone my big theory of Mahler yeah. is that he was really kind of a Mussolini spirit. He started out as a socialist, later communist, right? Yeah. And in my opinion, he was, he was really never a full believer. This is kind of evidenced by him just fucking jumping from leftist ideology to leftist ideology. Okay, let's just become a Maoist for some time. That sounds nice. Okay, I never really never really believed that about him, you know? But I do think, on the other hand, that this guy, like he was just, being a fascist is his form of being a butterfly. 
He had been a caterpillar all his life. And then he finally went into full bloom, <laughs> like unfolding his fascist ideology. I really don't think he was an op. I think he was tapped into very strange connections, but I don't think he's he was like controlled in any meaningful way. He's like a bouncy ball. You you give him a push, you give him a like direction maybe but you can never control where this guy ends up yeah he's just too crazy and too unpredictable i think i get the impression that he was just trying to be involved like he like you see how he like tries to get into the green party he tries to do this like he like it seems like he just wanted to be an operative like an important person yeah i agree with that for sure and he just tried a bunch of things, right? Yep. But like at a certain point, he was being run what by the like the Soviets and the GDR even. But then at a certain point, he probably, and it's not clear because they won, but like West Germany probably had him on the hook at certain points. Like, do you think? I do think, but. West Germany might have had him on the hooks. Not sure he was actually ever deeply involved with either the Soviet Union or the GDR. There was something going on there, but I'm not sure if it's even that substantial. Because this guy kept hopping so much, right? Like maybe in his Maoist phase, maybe he had something to do with like the GDR. But can you imagine like a Green Party member or like an FDP member? I don't know. Now, I want to ask you, though, because he sort of introduced the structure. He found a lot of the weapons. He sort of started it all. So, like, who was he working with to get that going, you know? I think he was working mostly with, uh, like, other members of the first uh, gen, like Raspe and uh, Mainz and Möller, who I think at that time were all in Germany. It was only Meinhof, Enslin and Bader who were in Italy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think he just like naturally um, took over because he does kind of have some leadership qualities. He did have a like really crazy career in the NPD and like with neo-Nazis in general. He's also one of Germany's most famous Holocaust uh, deniers and probably the one who was like, sentenced for it the most. I think there's like seven different proceedings that had gone on. Interesting. So one more person I want to mention before we conclude this, right? This is going to be a shorter one, but it's a very fun one. <laughs> so the guy who defended Horst Mahler was Otto Schilly. Otto Schilly would later be known as the Minister of Interior, who was with the Greens and later also the SPD. Yeah. Minister of Interior, that's a pretty weird situation to give to this guy, but okay. He's very infamous. Schilly is super infamous in German politics because he was a founder of the Green Party. He literally met with Muammar Gaddafi to discuss anti-imperialist policies, right? And as a minister of interior, he brought into motion new German anti-terror laws. <laughs> the differences are so crass that, yeah, I think a lot of the actors of the 68 movement weren't 
maybe genuine. I'm not sure if this can be said about Chile. I don't know that much about um, his career, but can certainly be said about some of them. And weirdly enough, like you'd imagine defending a literal terrorist in court would not be the best ticket into politics, but turns out it is. So many of the 68 guys actually made it big in politics and media, like really. It was a bit like how in the United States, many of the hippies were then like fervent capitalists later on, right? Yes. And in fact, in, in particular, a lot of the weather underground guys were given, I say given like academic like professorships, like the, the ones that I imagine kind of like collaborated with the police probably were given academic careers. So I do think there's a little bit of parallel there where you, I, I agree, like you have to ask yourself, like, were all of these people acting in good faith at the time? I do think most of them were, but some people profited like intensely from the things they did in as part of a student movement or even like as part of one of those uh, terrorist organizations legally representing them. Even Mahler himself had a fucking marvelous career, right? Until he descended into full force neo-Nazism. Yes. So maybe like we've been talking about biographies and individuals for such a long time now. Yeah. Maybe like to conclude, let's just step away for a minute, take a deep breath and look at the broader impact of a Red Army faction. What changed? Well, policing had gotten a like really strong paramilitary influence. Mm -hmm. Policing also gained more public support even though that had only recently been shattered by the insane violence of the uh, protests. The launch of the uh, GSG-9 was cheered on after their successful operation in Mogadishu. Rastafandung uh, or Dragnet became the absolute norm. The coalition gained strong support after they quote-unquote defeated the terrorist threat. In fact, like in the 60s and 70s, there was barely an opposition right like only really the fdp and they were small today the situation is of course the complete reverse now the big folks are kind of dying off and we have lots of smaller parties yeah one thing though and this is the last thing i want to get across because it never gets mentioned the worst thing the red army faction ever did in their entire career was that they completely discredited communism as a political force as an ideology and they made it basically synonymous with terrorism and this is something that lenin is probably still spinning in his grave about <laughs> yeah and the fucking german press they loved this like springer they constantly printed articles about uh, bader being an anarchist right because they wanted to like subconsciously connect communism and anarchism and kind of act like this is an equivalent it's just two words for the same phenomenon it really couldn't be further from the truth right in the end like all of the things that i just listed they definitely only served the status quo yes and this is the real terrifying thing about the red army faction 
This is like pure blowback. Many of the things they planned had the opposite effect of what they intended. This is also my biggest critique of them, I guess. They might have had good intentions, sure, but what ended up happening, like the consequences, they were very sucky. Yeah, and like even in particular instances, like you broke down, like where they maybe assassinated a guy who was going to privatize like the GDR or this or that. And it only led to like an even worse outcome, like almost like point by point, almost everything they did just like backfired, assuming that like their stated goals were the goals that they were trying to achieve. Yeah. Like I think the Red Army faction is probably one of the best arguments you can make for dialectical materialism, <laughs> because you, you think like whatever those people do, right? Things will happen the way they're going to happen. The German police is going to crack down. Nothing is going to make them not crack down. Like these things are going to intensify. This also means they're going to get more money. This also means they're going to have like money to spread around for new projects like the GSG 9 or the Rasterfahndung for which you need computer networks and shit like that. Yeah. There is a very strong left critique of the RAF. And I don't think that it's helpful to like entirely concede that critique to the center and the right like this stuff just didn't work this is it just in fact not only didn't work it actively harmed the communist movement like yep very interesting joe i know we've been going a long time i did have one or two more questions just for you um if you are cool with that shoot me okay <laughs> uh what so a lot has been made of connections between the Stasi and like the, the Soviets supporting the RAF. What's your take on that? Because I've heard from different sources, not all of them reputable, that they would help the RAF. To what extent and like what was the nature to the best of what you can tell? I've heard this claim as well. And I believe this actually comes from West German intelligence. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned that in the 90s, lots of historians kind of started doubting this uh, claim and said it was pretty much unfunded. I would remind um, the listeners of the case of Horst Mahler, who definitely had to some degree connections to Eastern European intelligence. So it is very much possible that in this probably most crucial phase of the Red Army faction, might have been help from Eastern Europe. I definitely wouldn't count that out. Now, me personally, I don't believe that shit. I have some reasons as to why I don't believe that shit. For example, we do know about um, East German conduct about Rudi Dutschke. And they really did not like Dutschke. They denounced him, they called him an anarchist, they said he was hurting the cause and so on. So if they weren't ready to support Dutschke, I'm not sure they were ready to support the Red Army faction. Interesting. On the other hand, though, yeah. Eastern Germany would probably benefit from Western Germany looking weak in the international press and like uh, generally social problems, <laughs> social problems coming to the forefront, like through the actions of the Red Army faction. 
that's some that's one way in which East Germany could benefit from sponsoring the Red Army faction. Let me ask you this, because I know you said that in fact, and I didn't realize this, there are some RAF members still at large. I had heard, I don't know if it's true, that some of them actually got new identities in East Germany. Do you think that's true? I think you're specifically referring to the third generation here. I think so. And yeah, I think that I think that could be true, actually. Yeah. I think the one active now um, pretty much was after the reunification. So they haven't really done anything important, in my opinion. They tend to rob banks and do stuff like that, low profile stuff. And I think they're just mostly doing it to keep themselves alive and to keep this weird simulacrum of what once was the Red Army faction alive. Yeah. But the third generation, it's very much possible that they had received some help from the GDR, which pretty much was like in free fall at the end of the 80s, right? Yeah, like one of the assassinations they did, they had like almost like a roadside bomb with like a laser thing that like sounds a whole lot like somewhat, like it sounded sophisticated. Would all it would almost be weird if there were like zero stay behind networks after the GDR died down, right? Oh, interesting. They were big on intelligence. We always just think of the right, just logically, no. But it's also not impossible that there was something like that in the GDR. I've never thought of that, but that is interesting to think about. Um, <laughs> I did want to also just run past you real quick here. <laughs> Politico and I think the Atlantic cited unnamed former members of the RAF claiming that they had worked with Vladimir Putin. Wow. What? When he was in Dresden in the GDR, um, they said that uh, Putin was there uh, working, providing logistics and support. But mind you, they didn't cite the member. And I was very curious because I wanted to like see if this was true. The most critical question here is, was this before or after reunification? Or before or after the fall of the Soviet Union? This would have been uh, before. Because this would have been quite early in Putin's career. That makes it more realistic, don't it? Yes. I mean, if this was like somewhat in the mid-late 90s, I would say it's pretty much impossible. Like why yeah. would Putin like meet with such a completely unimportant person? But looking at the late late 80s, some very weird stuff happened in this liminal zone of um, like Russia being taken over, the Soviet Union finally ending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can see it. Because like, according to Putin in his own account like he was in Dresden and he said nothing was happening it was super boring I did nothing interesting <laughs> but this was the period specifically when the Deutsche Bank hit happened and the Atlantic article at least alleges that it was partially with Stasi KGB involvement well if that's the case then uh... <laughs> no, we're not leaving that one in. But I mean, like, I don't know if this is true. You know, this smacks to me a little bit of like Putin 
modern day character assassination. Yeah. When did this article come out? Because if it's after the Ukraine invasion, I'm going to call it. <laughs> Sorry. Right. Um, I don't know. I could probably find it real quick, but I do think it was like within the last 10 years, I think it was written. Hmm. Putin um, always like tapped into Germany, I think personally more than other European countries. Yeah. Not sure. I even think he um, he speaks and understands a little bit of German, not 100% on that. Yeah, I heard that he was like functionally fluent. Yeah, exactly. So him in the late 80s, he didn't have that high of a position. I think like shortly before the fall of the Soviet Union, he got into a higher position, but he wasn't like yeah. chief of intelligence until very, very late. At the fall, he was in Berlin or something, I think. Oh, that's also interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so in this case, like um, KGB agent working together with the last remnants of the Red Army faction. Yeah, I can imagine it. Yeah. Especially as they do actions that seem to me a whole lot less like mm -hmm. genuine and more like mercenary of a certain nature, which is the trajectory that like Carlos the Jackal took almost overtly like like almost on the surface doing it for different people like we do also know that like in belgium right all the gladio guys were highly skilled mercenaries like both guys were freaking trained killers there's a certain tendency like from um political terrorism to let's call it professional terrorism definitely yes the, like the... There's a certain point where Carlos was just literally just taking bids for contracts. Like he went Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe just to finish, do you want to explain how Germany adapted the movie Die Hard to suit German audiences? <laughs> oh yeah, we should definitely talk about that. This is a this is a very nice thing. <laughs> I've read, like, I found this article recently, American article, some Hollywood press bullshit, right? It was about, um, it was about Die Hard. Mm -hmm. This article says, you have to remember that when Die Hard was released back in 1988, Germany was still under terrorist threat from domestic groups such as the Red Army faction and the Bader-Meinhof gang. First, those are the same. Do some better research. Second, <laughs> Fred wasn't that big in the late 80s, okay? Not that many people died in the late 80s. Right. But the conclusion is correct. Having German terrorists parading around the screen and shooting at the guy from Moonlighting wasn't going to fly. Yes, we do have our little censorship too in Western Germany. <laughs> so what the fuck did they do? They made Alan Rickman and his band of merry terrorists Irish. <laughs> <laughs> Hans Gruber became Jack Gruber, Heinrich became Henry, Karl became Charlie, and on it went. <laughs> A background change from being German terrorists going freelance for profit to members of the IRA who left to become mercenaries. <laughs> Interestingly, pretty close to uh, some of our theories. Right. Oh, man. Like, first of all, insanely insulting to the ira yeah <laughs> but separate from that 
They don't look Irish. They look extremely German. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, we should have given them a little red tint, maybe. Will the persecution of our Irish brethren never end? God, I hope it fucking ends so, man. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, well, I, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Like, I know this is super long, but, like, I had a blast. So Yeah, this was fantastic. <laughs> no, it's great talking to you, I gotta say. You did some really good research. You asked the right questions. You have a very curious mind. We'll have to do something in the future, maybe a couple months from now, maybe maybe a shorter topic. Like, Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but I think it would be really fun. I agree. I think we have a lot to talk about, like about German intelligence in general. And I know you're very tapped into Weimar. I think we could find a great Weimar topic if we wanted. Yeah. So I like to cite a lot of the books I used I will read off a couple real quick, and then maybe if you want to list any that I didn't mention, separate from articles, which they can just DM us if they want. But I used the book, The Red Army Faction, Volumes 1 and 2, A Documentary History by Jay Smith and Andre Montcourt. I also used Europe's Red Terrorists, The Fighting Communist Organizations uh, by Yona Alexander and, De and Dennis Pluchinski. I also briefly used Martin Borman, A Nazi in Exile by Paul Manning. I also used various insane LaRouche articles. <laughs> and then one or two other articles I don't think I cited, but I don't have them up. Um, just talking about Ulrike's conditions in prison. Mm -hmm. um, did you have any other sources? Holy shit. I know yeah. you have a ton, but... I'll make you an offer. I'll like... Um... Tomorrow I have, to I have to close these 80 tabs that I have open right now. So I'll send you a list of all the books that I can find that I use for my research. I have like an 80, no, 61 page document here. So it's a lot of shit. Dang. See, that's, that's nuts, but like <laughs> you've had some crazy stuff. Oh, thanks, man. I appreciate it. No, like ridiculous. Like... <laughs> I thought I knew a lot and I know I'm not an expert, but like you found some really crazy yeah. stuff. I'm happiest about the uh, Peter Urbach and Verena Becker connection. That stuff is incredibly wild. Oh yeah. Especially because like Verfassungsschutz has been in critique because of the NSU process. And this is kind of another big thing that might be coming in the future, you know, at some point, maybe we will get those, um, we will get those documents about the Red Army faction. It's been like six, it's been 50 years now, right? Holy well, shit. Well, I mean, if the JFK thing is any indication, we probably won't. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Oh, I think this is a bit lower stakes. That's true. All right. Now, did you want to plug anything here at the end? I know we already plugged the show, but you could remind people or really anything at all. Any other words? No, oh, you know what I want to do? Dear listeners, it's uh, 5 a.m. over here. <laughs> I'm a tad little wee bit tired, but I've had a fucking grand time. Thank you so much, man, for having me on. And have a good night, everyone. Goodbye. You sometimes wonder and you sometimes wonder. 10,000 Deutschmarks to hand me over
Sometimes wondering.